goodness gracious. It's time for another episode of The Score. Oh my gosh, episode 23. Can you... 23? No, 26. 26. (laughs) (laughs) What am I thinking? It's 26. My gosh. (laughs) Three weeks ago. (laughs) You know what? It might as well be December. (laughs) The days and weeks just are just sliding by (laughs) here in my little basement bunker. Anyway, this is The Score. Welcome to it. Minnesota Opera's podcast all about classical music, opera, pop culture, as seen through the lens of three opera administrators of the global majority. Uh, My name is Rocky Jones. I am the EDI director here at Minnesota Opera. As always, I am joined by my two beautiful co-hosts. First, the vice president of Impact, Mr. Lee Bynum. Hello. Hello. Is it Lee you're looking for? (laughs) <laughs> trying out new catchphrases at some point one of these is going to work I... <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh wow okay <laughs> i won't quit my day job don't that, worry <laughs> that, i was not expecting that <laughs> well if you're looking for laughter in the reaction i guess it works yeah. what you're going yeah. for there you, you go. there you go. You know, actually speaking. Oh well. Before I get into that, and our my other co-host, of course, the lovely and talented civic engagement manager, Miss Paige Reynolds. Hello. Hey. How's it going? How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Yeah. Yeah. That's about right. That's about right. Yeah. yeah. I was gonna say good, and I was like, let's not lie. <laughs> the world's full of twists. Let's keep it real. Right keep now. it real. Keep Let's it real. Keep it real. That's the truth. <laughs> but thinking about taglines, though, I was going to say that I thought of one the other day. Um, and I don't know, have you ever listened to that podcast? Uh, yeah, dude. Probably not. No. Yeah. It's actually, it's one of like the first gen podcasts. Like they've been going since like 2008. They oh, basically wow. like yeah. take like, like studies like weird like you know studies that like corporation like betty crocker says that 98 percent of people like to bake brownies more than cookies <laughs> or whatever <laughs> and like make fun of it um like they just these weird random factoids or whatever um and their tagline is america seen through the eyes of two american americans and so <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking the other day, like like opera and classical music seen through the eyes of three African American Americans. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to think of one for my name okay. though. Is it Lee you're looking for? That was Yeah, I'm just like I have to come up with something. There's, I mean, obviously my name is very easily punnable. Turn the page. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's something I'm to think about, right? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not do, I'm not doing any sort of Rocky Road type situation. That's not happening. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that we can all have a laugh um, because y'all... Ooh, these past couple of weeks have been yeah. something else. Uh, we are 
we this is the first time that we are recording together um, since the death of Amir Locke mm. here in Minneapolis, uh, the victim of a police involved shooting. That's I'll just put it that way. <laughs> um, after a no knock, after the St. Paul police asked the Minneapolis police to serve a warrant. Um, in a murder investigation, the Minneapolis police requested a no-knock warrant, went into the apartment uh, where Amir was sleeping, um, and nine seconds later, he was shot and killed. Um, and so once again, our community is reckoning uh, with another another young man who has been taken down. Um, gosh, I don't even know <laughs> how to sort of finish that sentence. In the prime of his life, um, 21 years old. And so it's just uh, still sort of sitting here trying to process that, you know, weeks later. Um, I don't know. I don't know what really to say about it other than, you know, sending love and light uh, to the Locke family and all of the people who knew him and loved him who Absolutely. right now are, are deep in mourning um, and standing in solidarity with all the people who are real angry. <laughs> Because I'm, I am, yeah. I know that I'm feeling a lot of anger, yeah, as well as a lot of sadness. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's very much a feeling of like, just how, when, when is it enough? Like, how many times does it have to happen here, publicly, as well, like, in like these public matter matters. Yeah, yeah, like how how many times? I don't know. And and for the rest of us, how do we keep our energy up to continue fighting and organizing in the face of these frequently recurring events, right? Like mm -hmm. how do you just say to yourself, it's just as important, if not more important today that I continue in this work without those feelings of fatigue right mm -hmm. and I, mm -hmm. you know for me i what i try to do is allow myself to feel what i feel and allow myself to feel it for whatever period i'm feeling it and then work to recharge so that i can continue because i don't know i don't know that i have the option not to continue right i i don't know when we'll be in a situation where black and brown bodies aren't brutalized by the state. Like, I, I don't know when that moment will be. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And just in this, this time where it's like, we actually all have to like watch it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just so, just, you know, turning on the TV, you know, scrolling through Twitter, you know, there it is. George Floyd, Dante Wright, 
Sandra Bland, you know, all of these stories now are just sort of being captured on cell phone video and out there for public consumption. And it's just so traumatizing. Mm -hmm. So just fatiguing. And, you know, Lee, you and I were talking about this the other day, and it just sort of also makes me just sort of sit here and second guess, like, you know, all right, we're, we're doing this work, you know, in this space at an opera company, you know, and, and big part of why, you know, I do that is because, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I, I love the arts. I love being an artist. I feel like I'm good at it. <laughs> um, but, you know, maybe I should, maybe I should be in government. Maybe I should be, you know, in some sort of direct service mm -hmm. um, organization. And, you know, I struggle sometimes with feelings of not doing enough, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. especially like in the, the wake of these, these incidents, which don't seem to be gone anywhere, like you said, Paige. Um, so, you know, I, I struggle with that fatigue part of it too. Yeah. It's just, it's just so exhausting. It's amazing. Yeah, it's hard when to watch. I, I think especially like here, like where we are in Minneapolis, like it's hard to watch how um, uh, short attention spans can feel sometimes. I think nationally mm -hmm. and even within within our field, you know, as well. Like it's it's hard to not um, fall back into into business as as usual, and. I, like I can, I contend with that feeling, with that feeling a lot. <laughs> like, yeah, like kind of sort of the hope, like, should I be doing something else? Like, it seems like there's, there's some core functions of, <laughs> of what I do. I mean, just as a career, not even speaking, just like in Minnesota opera, just as, as a career and arts administrator, as a theater maker, like, it can be hard when you when you feel like those functions don't necessarily have a direct impact mm -hmm. on like the issues you care about the most or what seems really urgent or like really really pressing and yeah it it can it can <laughs> especially in moments like right like right now with the with the death of Amir Locke you're when it comes to national conversations, you're just like, did everyone forget or do they not know that literally like police have not here have not stopped killing people since the murder of George Floyd? Like, and it hasn't just been a mere luck. I don't, it, it can be wild to watch how, how quickly our, our priorities can kind of shift back into the, the business as usual. <sighs> And, and what is business as usual, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I, in these instances, I, I spend a lot of time, but I, I find myself sort of pulled between this question of what do I need to do? How do I use my skills and my knowledge to make a different world before me to whatever extent I can participate in that and then get pulled into kind of what what are the families going through right like where does this leave mm -hmm. them the legacies of these kinds of incidents really stay with people right and when i'm thinking about organizationally what we should do 
for society and then try to sit that between beside rather um where the families may be with some of this it becomes really complicated right because there's this need to honor and address professionally and then you know on the other end families want to be able to grieve and mourn privately and then want to be able to move on with the rest of their lives in some ways right and i've shared before maybe on this podcast but i shared with the two of you that when i was a kid we had a an instance not totally dissimilar to this happen in my family um december 20th 1986 there was an incident in howard beach new york um, where a group of West Indian immigrants were attacked, not by the police, but by a group of white teens, and it was racially motivated. One of them, his name Michael Griffith, was was killed in the process. Um, one of the others, um, Cedric Sandefur, was my uncle, um, and he since passed unrelatedly. But the sort of legacies of what happened at Howard Beach and at the time, I was I was a young kid. I was in first grade. Like it was like on the news. You know they made a TV movie about it and Joe Morton played my uncle. Like it, it was this huge thing that so marked my childhood, right? And mm. kind of frames events like this in a very specific way in my head where we're both supposed to take action and then at the same time have to give people space to process, like privately giving people space to process what has happened and how that will always be a factor um, in our lives, right? So that's, you know, sort of how stuff like this just, it it just sits with me for like a very long time. Every time one of these things happen, every time I see a, a grieving mother or father on the news, every time I read a tweet, like I think about like how long something like this is going to sit with those people and shape and reshape so many of the perspectives they have about who they are and, and how the world works and how you're supposed to engage with it. And when the three of us were talking a little bit about this yesterday or the day before, um, you know, I, I felt like I, I'm not always sure mm-hmm. about how organizations, especially organizations like ours that don't have a direct part in the process right are supposed to react to stuff like this because there is this piece where we represent a whole community right and there is a conversation that we have a responsibility as a is an organization that exists in a civic space to have and then on the other hand there's a way that we are not structured or shaped or have done the work of hiring people who can address anything like this directly right and and there is this piece of for me when we need to make a statement under what circumstances that will read as hollow right and then Mm -hmm. the extent to which we need to pick up the fight in our own way right and and sort of understanding that as an arts organization, our wickets are productions, right? Like world-class opera productions, literally says so on the website, right? Like, what does that mean in this context? How do we bring those values to bear on the stuff that we do and we do well, while at the same time using our largesse to amplify the work of organizations that actually 
do exist to take on this work, right? Direct service organizations, mm -hmm. advocacy organizations, that kind of a thing. And it does feel sometimes like we're not doing enough, like we could never do enough. And then on the other hand, it also feels like it's okay to acknowledge this is the thing that we do, right? And what is the investment in making productions that reflect this? What does that look like, right? In terms of the casting and the programming and the the shaping of creative teams, you know, what, what does that mean? And then how you do that as a person who in the moment is experiencing a personal amount of trauma around this and recognizing how important this work is, but at the same time knowing this doesn't do anything to alleviate the pain that people are feeling in the moment. Yeah. No, because it's it's an interesting conundrum. Um, because, you know, personally, I would rather there be no statement at all than something that feels just sort of like we put this out here because <laughs> we felt like we needed to say something Amen. and, you know, sure, we'll sit here and we'll say Black Lives Matter or, you know, stop Asian hate or, you know, whatever the, the hashtag is, um, but our actions aren't actually going to back that up. Yeah. Um, you know, the the dollars that we're spending are not actually going to go to organizations that are going to back up that statement. Um, and it, it drives me <laughs> a little bit, um, a little bit crazy um, when I, when I see that. And so, you know, it, it is very important for me, um, especially as the EDI director of this particular company, um, that whenever we do say something, because I, I, I do believe in my heart of hearts that, you know, we're more than an arts organization, you know, we are a civic institution, we do have a responsibility as an organization that, you know, takes public money, um, that, you know, we are representing everyone, um, that everyone feels safe, um, you know, within our walls, in our spaces, whether that's, you know, coming to see a main stage opera or participating in an education program, um, we're coming to work, um, you know, as an artist or a staff member. Um, and so, you know, I, I tend to think back to um, the shooting in Atlanta um, that happened, gosh, what is time? Um, <laughs> uh, and sort of the statement that we put out around that. And for me, it was really thinking about, you know, our industry and what really are we doing, you know, to stop Asian hate? And what are some of the things that we've done to perpetuate it? And like, let's address those things head on. And then here are a whole bunch of links so you can give some money to some organizations, um, you know, and hopefully just sort of using our audience and our platform to really affect some sort of positive change. Um, but with all that said, like, it, it, it never seems like it's enough, yeah. right? It really yeah. doesn't. Cause you know, I just, I remember that, that morning, um, 
that we got the the news, everyone found out about that shooting, um, reaching out to the members of the API community that we have on staff and just hearing the pain in their voices. Like none of them obviously, you know, had any personal ties um, to that, that particular tragedy, but just, you know, in the same way that we're sitting here and we're processing this pain and they're and, and processing this grief, they were doing the same thing and just wanting so badly to somehow lessen that burden <laughs> for them um, in the same way that, you know, I want to lessen the burden that I'm carrying right now, mm-hmm. um, that you all are carrying right now. And it's just, sometimes I wonder if it's, our place to do that if like we just do that by you know presenting you know works that you know are in alignment with our values do we put out a statement do we encourage you know charitable donations like ah (laughs) you know and it's just right right Because some of it is a conversation with our community, right? Right. Really getting a sense of what does the community, what do they even want from us? Exactly. What What do they want, right? And I think we are slowly building out our capacity to be able to have those conversations consistently in real time and get in the right kinds of information. And at the same time, right? So I went to the anonymous lover for the 75 minutes the show was running in the half an hour to get there and to get back between i wasn't i wasn't thinking about so many of the things going on in the world right and i was able to sort of give myself mm-hmm. that space to just enjoy the music and the show ends and you get in the lift and you're on your way back to minneapolis and you are reminded of what's happening in the world right so on the one hand i was certainly grateful for that time away as a person inclined towards music like music is a powerful way for me to express what i'm feeling in a moment or not express what i'm feeling if that's what i want to do right Mm -hmm. um and i wasn't laboring under the delusion that this piece as wonderful as it was was going to solve that right but it did give a little bit of space there are other pieces that can give voice and space to other kinds of things. And and I do think part of our responsibility right now is understanding how to find those pieces, identify them, program them, have conversations around them, but also we're, we are the organization that we are, right? Like our orientation is not to solve poverty or police brutality and we can't, right? So then how are we supporting those organizations that do in ways that are organic and fair and reflective of the fact that this is America. So part of how we have to show that support is with material resources, right? Like what are those conversations? And I I hope that we can continue to have them openly and honestly here and continue to prioritize that this is a part of responding holistically to audiences is knowing that this is a real conversation and knowing that we have a part to play, whatever we decide that part is. Well, I think a thing, a possible part (laughs) to play, I think for the arts or one that gives me, I think a lot of, a lot of hope and that feels useful is when I think of artists as, as cultural keepers, 
as as historians, as sometimes archivists, as you know, reflecting reflecting the times, as as Nina Simone would say, we should we ought to do. Um, and to me, especially, you know, when you. I, I think all of us in, have probably sat in a theater class at some point and or English class and talked about the importance of, of narrative and talked about the importance of, of who's speaking, who's telling a story. Is it from those who were in power at the time or is it from those who were marginalized at the time? I think like the possibilities of the arts to, to do that or to illuminate that is really, I think that's really important. That's really important, especially again in this world where our attention spans change so quickly. The mm -hmm. media goes a mile a minute. Mm -hmm. I think it it means even more to have something that says, "Hey, this happened," or mm -hmm. to um, you know find ways to to memorialize the the movement to what what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Make monuments of these of these moments I think I think that's in that's important as well like there's a reason why we talk so much about or why it's such a big deal with like statues coming down of confederate mm -hmm. <laughs> figures mm -hmm. or racist mm -hmm. and misogynist and all of that because just like the public narrative is so is just so crucial like it informs how we remember things and that informs how we do things now and in the future so I think I don't know. That part about art makes me feel makes me feel hopeful. I'm just like, yeah. oh, yeah. I can do that. Yeah. I can tell a story yeah. about what's going on right now. I can I can write a song. I can paint a painting. I can okay. Like that feels that feels doable and 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 useful. So yeah, I, I think I'm like as artists, like what what like what would an opera about now look like that like speaks truth to what's going on now and ideas like that. Yeah, yeah, thank that, you for thank you for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, tend, I tend to get bogged down. You know, I feel like so often we sort of get this, especially like you think back to like, you know, the the 60s, you know, and you've got, you know, like Nina Simone and you know. Uh, Marvin Gaye and uh, Richie Havens, all these, all these artists who, you know, were sort of seen as prophets who are able to sort of really encapsulate the moment and really say, um, just really paint a picture of so many of the injustices that were happening and people really listened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like, especially since like the eighties, and arts funding going the way of the dodo in many cases. You know, we've just been, as artists, been told to, you know, like Laura Ingram saying to LeBron, shut up and dribble. Like, like just mm -hmm. go shut up and paint your little pictures. Go shut up and do your little operas. And sometimes I do get caught up in that thinking and I need to stop because we do have an incredible, incredible amount of power. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think back to, I mean, this is, why I do what I do, um, you know, sitting on a park bench when I was 13 and listening to an album and having it make me cry and, you know, thinking like, oh my God, I want to do that for the rest of my life. Um, you know, there's just so much power. Um, 
still, no matter what, um, and just human just creation and connection. Um, I needed that. Thank you, Paige. Yeah, no, <laughs> thank you. I, thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I'm reminded of, of two songs as you were talking, Rocky, about, you know, the 60s. I'm thinking of two, two songs from the 30s, um, Strange Fruit and Summertime, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. both of which really affected people in terms of being able to capture what lynching was like at a very, very human level. Right. Um, and I, you know, there are clearly artists writing and producing and performing today that are making those efforts to memorialize what these moments are. And, you know, perhaps in a, in a moment of less emotional haze, you know, mm-hmm. some of that will resonate with me differently, but I'm also really grateful for that intervention page because I I do think that's part of how we change people's minds and we do that through art, right? Yeah, yeah. When I think about Nina again, oh gosh, like when I, <laughs> I think like I just remember the first time I heard her sing like Mississippi, goddamn, mm-hmm. I was like, <gasps> like they let her sing this? Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> This is a show tune. <laughs> right. I'm just, just like, I'm just gonna sing this little, this little ditty. Girl, like <laughs> but also like because it uh, hearing it, I absolutely understood where she was at the moment mm-hmm. and the type of anger, mm-hmm. the type of rage like of that moment. Like I I mean, I'm already history in her anyway, but I think about like who's creating that now, like what's going to tell future generations what we were, what we were going through. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of a lot of what you can hear right now is just representing so many other parts of the culture, which are absolutely valid to capture right but what is that moment and if you think about some of the live recordings of Mississippi Goddamn when she starts the audience is applauding. They hear that opening vamp, which sounds mm. like Kurt Vile, and they think this is going to be a cute little <laughs> bouncy something. Mm. And then by the time she gets halfway through, you can hear a pin drop, right? Like yeah. the audience is really listening and really processing in a different way, right? And what are what are those moments happening right now? Not just on you know stages like the Ordway, but where is this happening, you know, artistically right now? And and what can we do at a company like ours to reemphasize that this is an important way that we are memorializing the moment, that we are speaking to the zeitgeist, that we are responding to the trauma and the violence that's happening around us? Because it's not just these are songs, right? These are responses. These are engagements with the moment. Well, I'm curious. I want. I want to. I think I want to hear from our community. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to hear from all of you out there. You know, we've got our email, uh, the score at mnopera.org. What do you all want? Yeah, hop on the <laughs> from an, from, an, from an organization like us, um, like ours. You know, we want to to speak to this moment. Yeah. Um, and so what are some suggestions? What are some thoughts? What are some concerns? Should we just shut the F up? 
sing your little song. <laughs> but I'm serious. I'm serious. You know, I I do wanna I do wanna engage um, with the folks out there because you know we're just living through you know not just the extrajudicial killings of of black folks, but you know COVID nineteen and just the world is just, <laughs> I don't want to say exploding, um, but, you know, it just feels like there is just so much, you know, wild S word. Happening <laughs> 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 each and every day. And, you know, just being, you know, a thinking sentient human being on the planet it's hard to you know just not vacillate between just feeling crazy and angry and sad um and to especially like as artists to want to respond to that in some way but you know as members of the the community what do you all what do you all think of all this what do you all want need let us know Absolutely. And hopefully, you know, we'll get some emails and maybe we can read them on the air. And, and if I may, there, there are two pieces um, that are very close to my heart um, and from friends of the show that I would love to speak their names on air in it. case people mm -hmm. want to check them out. Um, the first one is written by our dear friend in Kiru Okoye. It's called Invitation to a Die-In. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> and it's specifically in response to the recent murders of unarmed Black men at the hands of police or vigilantes. Um, it was written for Damien, also a friend of the show. Um, and it's been performed by other folks since then. And there are uh, versions of it online. The text was written by David Cody. And I encourage folks to check out that piece because it's a really powerful piece. And it is often staged in such a way that by the end of the piece, you actually see the, the baritone who is singing and the individuals in the orchestra dying um, as a result of it. So like there's also a, a powerful theatrical moment. The other is a piece by Courtney Bryan, um, really amazing composer. I went to grad school with her. <clears throat> it was commissioned by the Dream Unfinished. Um, our friend Un Lee is the leader of that organization. It's called Yet Unheard, and it is dedicated to Sandra Bland. And it's also a really powerful piece, this one for Soprano, and um, it's also widely available online. And I encourage folks to listen and engage with works like theirs. There are other composers, Joel Bentley Thompson, some other people I could think of off the top of my head who are also writing um, in the classical idiom in conversant with this kind of thing. But, you know, we, we need more and we certainly want to hear from everybody out there about what's speaking to them right now, what inspires mm -hmm. them and maybe what they would like to see and hear. Absolutely. Well, this is going to be an ongoing conversation, probably for the rest of time. <laughs> but we need to move on with the rest of our show. And we have got a good one today um, with all of this happening. Um, may have forgotten that we have part three of our Joseph Palooza. 
Yay. going on. So that's that's spoiler alert. Probably might be that, right? <laughs> <laughs> and this 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 time around, I. I loved this conversation so much. I'm actually really, really proud of it. And I think it's one of the coolest things that we've done, but we have Professor Julian Ledford on to talk about uh, Joseph Malone, his life. He wrote a paper um, about a lot of people are introduced to Joseph Malone's life and work, um, you know, as, as the black Mozart. And um, that's problematic. <laughs> that <laughs> moniker <laughs> just a tad and so professor Ledford uh, wrote a whole paper um about uh you know exactly why that is is so problematic but he also just has such a deep appreciation for Balone's life and his work and is just so passionate about the subject that you know I left that conversation feeling super inspired and wanting to go write a a symphony of my own so <laughs> I don't know about y'all <laughs> but uh stay tuned uh Professor Julian Ledford is up next and then after that Pure Black Joy so we will be right back after this and we're back and we have a very very special guest with us this afternoon who will help us continue to think about Joseph Ballone, his significance, and why he is so, so much more than the Black Mozart. So our special guest today is Professor Julian Ledford. He is an assistant professor of French and French studies at the University of the South in Tennessee. Dr. Ledford specializes in early modern French and Francophone literature with a particular focus on Joseph Boulogne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, as well as 18th century women writers' contributions to discussions on masculinities. Clearly, we should have him back again in the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the alumnus of <laughs> Washington and Lee and Vanderbilt Universities and the Peabody Institute at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Ledford also researches ethnic, racial, and sexual difference in the 1700s, French Baroque opera, and second language teaching and learning. Welcome, Dr. Ledford. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here and um, excited about the production. I congratulate all of you for this work. You know, this is, um, you know, it warms my heart to see, um, you know, that Ballon's work is not, um, you know, going back into obscurity and there's so much energy around um, this work. So thank you, thank you, thank you many times for having me and thank you for your work. Oh, well, thank you for being here. <laughs> and thank you, thank you, thank you for your thanks. <laughs> <laughs> See, um, so why don't we just jump right in and break down the term, the Black Mozart, and why it's problematic as a moniker for Boulogne. What, and also maybe as a part of that, you could say a little bit about the actual timeline between Boulogne versus Mozart's musical careers and sort of how the term Black Mozart erases the full richness of Boulogne's life. Yeah, um, so maybe we'll start with the, with the, with the latter question. You know, um, Mozart and Joseph Boulogne were, you know, um, prominent at the same time. You know, they were, um, they knew each other, they were aware of each other's work, you know. Um, in fact, um, Bologna is older or was older than Mozart. And as the story goes, you know, um, Mozart was down on his luck and, you know, was trying to, you know, find his, his, his own name and his own path um, in classical music. 
And his dad invited him or told him to go seek out Joseph Bologna, go to France. And if you, when you're there, you know, find this man because he's doing great things, you know, in Paris. And so the introduction to, you know, the, the world of classical music in um, Paris um, would have probably, you know, for, for Mozart, would have, you know, led him to um, Joseph Bologna. And so it's interesting for me, you know, when I, you know, first got into this to see that, well, looking at the term Black Mozart, it would seem as if, you know, Bologna was trying to sort of imitate what Mozart was doing. And that he was the second, the other, the one who, you know, um, wasn't quite there yet, wasn't quite Mozart, but the black one. And that's the only way that we could, we could understand him. And that was the beginning of, you know, um, his, his, his introduction to, you know, um, classical music um, and, and to those who, you know, listen to um, um, Mozart and who listen to um, 18th century classical music, that there's Mozart and then this this other one who, you know, is, you know, maybe not as prominent, but is a black one. And so I took issue with that, of course. Now, <laughs> I'll be honest, I'll be honest. Um, it is a catchy term, I have to say, you know, we all know, and this is not to take any way, anything away from Mozart, you know, um, his work stands on its own and that's fine. Um, but my introduction and what caught my eye was first Mozart and then the addition of black, you know, you know, made me, you know, really double down to say, well, who is this person? Why have I never heard of him, you know? And so in, in one sense, and I hate to say this, but, you know, in one sense, it did bring attention to Joseph Bologna, the term black Mozart. But once that attention is gained, what do we do with that term? Once we've arrived then, we're, we're not paying attention to this man. What do we do with the term Black Mozart? And so in my, in my work, you know, I am trying to sort of erase or remove um, this terminology because it's sort of, you know, it, it, it doesn't allow us to explore the unique um, contributions of um, Saint-Georges or uh, Bologna, um, as we call him, um, and to really see how he contributed to 18th century French music, especially to symphonic music at the time, right? And I mean, at this point, I can't say that, you know, um, Mozart borrowed or even, you know, copied some of, you know, um, Bologna's work. But, you know, that's probably, you know, a lesser argument. It's, not, it's something that we have to <laughs> discuss. I mean, you know, um, if we separate the two, there's enough um, that Bologna has done on his own to you know, earn for him his own name and his own space, yeah. And so, you know, in my um, discussion, in my um, work, that's what you know, what I'm trying to encourage listeners of um, um, this music, those who study the music, those who perform the music, to not try to recreate or find within Bologna some you know aspect of Mozart, but to appreciate this man for you know on his own, you know, and create the the the, the, the terms and the parameters and the objects. They feel well philosophical objects with which to treat Joseph Bologna separately. So I'm curious, you know, when you first um, learned about Bologna, you know, I think like like I mentioned before we started um, the recording, I was introduced to Bologna as um, the Black Mozart as yeah. well. Um, mm -hmm. So was there, you know, a piece of music that you heard or just reading about his life? I mean, he was so incredible, such an incredible fencer and military yeah. leader and statesman. Yeah. Um, what was it about Bologna when you first were introduced to him um, that made you so um, excited to learn more about him. <laughs> Honestly, everything. Um, and the first thing was maybe shame, complete shame. Because, I mean, you know, I mean, 
I, I am I am still discovering more about this this man, and here it is. I you know I done my studies, you know, um, uh, masters in music. I would say, you know, and also you know a doctorate in French studies, and nowhere did I did I you know encounter this 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 person, but randomly, you know, after, uh, hmm, let me be let me be honest, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I was told that my area of expertise, you know, was interesting, but perhaps not as, uh, there was not much longevity in it. You know, I was looking more so at, you know, 17th century um, um, music theories. You know, that's pretty, uh, not many people are, are really interested in that. So I was encouraged to maybe, you know, broaden my horizon somewhat and try to find my own self, you know, in my work. And so I said, well, here I am, a black man, from Jamaica, who's interested in opera, you know, and, you know, early modern, you know, mid-modern, you know, um, 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 you know, centuries. And I said, there is no one who would fit that category. And so a random search, you know, led me to this term, as you said, Black Mozart, like, okay, Black Mozart, but if, is it someone who's maybe born in, you know, some parts of the Caribbean or, you know, or who is this person? And when I found out that his mom was an enslaved African, you know, my eyes almost, you know, fell out of my head. I was like, there's no way that there is someone who is a son of an enslaved African who rose to prominence as a classical musician from Guadeloupe right here, you know? And, and you know, I didn't know about it. And, and, you know? and no, I didn't know about it either. And, you know, I've been in classical music for years, you know? So right, right. it's, so it's crazy. You know, I couldn't walk around not knowing about this person. So I, you know, kept uh, reading, you know, and just discovering more about his life. And there's still so much to be, you know, uh, discovered. You know, I'm his friend group, for example, the people who he had in his entourage, um, you know, as you say, from, from fencing, from boxing, he was also, you know, uh, just this all-round um, athlete. But and also, you know, um, these actresses who seem to just love him and you know the rumors that told about him his you know um his endowment you know and the mysteries about you know what he was as a sexual in a creature just you know there's so much to to find you know so much to unearth and so it's at one it, it, it's at once daunting you know to say well oh my gosh there's so much that I don't know and there's so much that you know probably will never know there's so much that we have lost to history lost to time um, you know, this man that supposedly wrote 200 arias or 200, you know, um, um, songs, where are the songs, you know, <laughs> who's going to interpret yeah. them, who's going to, you know, transcribe them, you know, so, um, I don't know, I feel, I feel a little, um, maybe not overwhelmed, but um, uh, as if I'm behind, you know, and that, you know, we need to actually do what you're doing um, in, in um, Minnesota to actually, you know, shed light on this music and maybe call um, other researchers and, and other powerful minds to, to, to actually unearth um, a lot about this, um, this man and publish it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I hope people answer that call. I, I think your energy about it is infectious. Uh, I do, I do. And, I mean, I, to what you and Rocky have described, I had similar reactions finding out about Bologna and I was just like, right. what? Like, right. how did I not know about all these accomplishments and the relatability as well mm -hmm. as like mm -hmm. a black person we all know who have had to navigate mm -hmm. either uh, white spaces or, or really yes. classed spaces as yes. well. Um, but I wonder like what have other 
folks' uh, reactions to your work been, um, especially, I mean, I, I think to like Bologna himself, like learning about his life, but also to you kind of debunking the Black Mozart um, thing or, you know, making the argument that maybe that's not the best moniker for him. Right. What have the reactions I been? You know, um, uh, fortunately, um, you know, people have reacted um, very kindly. I haven't had much um, pushback, you know, I haven't had many um, people say, well, you know, um, you know, my argument is, you know, not valid. Um, in fact, the opposite people have, um, you know, given a lot of praise um, for my work, um, you know, um, uh, they do understand that perhaps once upon a time, the term Black Mozart was useful. It did, you know, call attention to something and to someone, and maybe in some sort of allyship, if you want to, you know, say, uh, use that terminology, that Mozart, you know, who did eventually, you know, gain more prominence, some somehow, you know, latently looked back and say, okay, said, okay, well, you know, my name can be used to maybe, you know, um, lift this person out of obscurity. Now, the term obscurity that I've used to, you know, uh, mention, to, 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 to describe Saint-Georges or Bologna, sorry, um, that is where I've gotten some, some pushback. There are persons who believe that um, Saint-Georges was never an obscure figure. So here we are saying that we didn't know about, you know, José Bologna. And I, you know, in an article I, I wrote, well, I, you know, I, and I um, submitted the, um, you know, feedback was, well, remove the term obscure. He was not obscure mm -hmm. and is not obscure. And so I still don't know how to respond to that, you know? Um, sure, in his time, if he rose to this prominence in France, yes, he, you know, did, you know, uh, live in, you know, high society and was friends with aristocrats and, and, and the nobility. But the passage of time, you know, has actually buried him under a lot of, you know, sure, you know, um, obscurity, I would say. He is someone who is, you know, it's just recently I would say that, you know, um, different opera houses and different, you know, con um, symphonies are, you know, programming his music frequently and regularly. But I will still argue that, you know, um, Black Mozart is still more popular than José Bologna. And José Bologna is also, I would say, still an obscure figure. Um, for what he was and what he is today, there's a huge, there's huge difference between, you know, his, 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 his prominence in the 18th century and what he is today. And so I would still argue that, you know, there's, there's a lot of work to be done to remove this obscurity from him. And to, um, you know, and that starts by calling him Joseph Bologne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, and not Black Mozart. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's where, you know, I'm still debating it. I'm not sure how to argue, you know, that, you know, someone is, is obscure. Do I need to count the many times, the, the amount of times that, you know, his work is programmed, count, you know, how many people, how many, you know, um, musicians and musicologists and um, those who are doing their uh, doc uh, doctoral work, how many times, you know, they mention and actually, you know, even know basic facts about this man. Like, you know, the, 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 the um, symphony, um, um, symphony concertante, yeah, this, 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 this musical genre that he actually pioneered. Hmm. How often do we, you know, use that? How often do we, do we, you know, hear that mentioned, you know, um, in these musical circles where people study music and study the 18th century, how, how often do we link that to Joseph Bologna? Um, and for these reasons, I, I, I mean, uh, I think there's much more work to be done to move him from this obscurity and actually 
you know, uh, restore to him, if that's a better term, restore to him, you know, the prominence that he did have in the 18th century. Yeah, that's, that's really awesome. Thank you for that. Um, so there is a recurring conversation we've had mm -hmm. on the podcast with a number of guests who were, you know, composers or singers, um, yeah. several um, Black people who have come on and have brought up the fact that uh, very commonly, if there is a work that is being produced either by Black creators or for Black audiences or even with a primarily Black cast, they frequently feature the suffering of Black people, right? Mm -hmm. And this is whether they are contemporary or canonical works, right? And part of what is refreshing and, and very unique about The Anonymous Lover is that it feels a not racialized right mm -hmm. and it also has the same quality the slight airy quality like a rom-com right right so his work at least this particular piece isn't overtly political right. and i'm curious from your perspective does this make it more palatable to audiences in general to white audiences is it like a bit of a of a relief for black audiences to be able to go into the space and and know that no one is going to be, you know, murdered or brutalized <laughs> in the next oh you know, couple hours. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's a that's a tricky question. You know, um, putting it into in context. You know, if this if this um, opera was performed for the you know for the aristocrats, you know, for Madame de Montesson in her private theater, you know, it would have to be something that would you know please the the people, you know, mm -hmm. please the audience, and not something to actually ruffle any feathers, you know, mm -hmm. because you know if you have the privilege of the king, you know, you make sure you do what you need to do to to keep that privilege. Um, but for for the for, for the for the um, concert goer today, looking at what opera is supposed to do, um, and this is this is another debate, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if we should go there, but you know, the difference between opera and straight theater, you know, what is you know what is sublime versus what is you know marvelous, you know, in opera we have the things that fly, we have you know magic, we have you know these catchy tunes, you know, and dancing dragons and like you know fire breathing things, um, and it's supposed to sort of you know enchant the audience in a different way, you know, and I think we're able to with this music by Saint Georges, you know, invite concert goers to actually live just for that, the enchantment of the moment, and you know see on the stage a world that is just you know removed from the reality and in that space you know there can be joy there can be this feeling of you know, whatever deep emotion there is if it's laughter plain laughter and i think in a time like this you know if we can just in the light in a very light hearted way laugh together and have a moment to escape in a reality, even though we'll still be in masks and, you know, distance and everything. Um, we would have served um, St. George's music and we've served, you know, opera, you know, well. And so um, this is not to say that um, um, José Bologna was not, you know, politically um, um, engaged. He did write a pamphlet during the French Revolution. You know, he was, you know, heavily um, in, involved in, you know, um, different um, wars, you know, different um, um, revolutionary wars all across France. So um, he was a very engaged citizen. And he said that openly, I'm a citizen of France, very engaged. Mm. But, you know, he was able to see within that, you know, this need for, you know, this 
this this this escape this 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 um, you know lighthearted moment where uh, the pleasure of someone else is what is important so um i'm not sure if i'm, I'm answering your question but um if if concert goers especially those who are you know people of color can see you know and um in saint george this lighthearted and happy and you know a very um, maybe almost tongue-in-cheek and you know mm. naughty um person personality that's great because you know it's it, those are all human emotions and we are fully part of the the, the human experience and it is it, it's tricky i don't know i mean as a as a, as, as a, a professor here you know at the university of the south you know <laughs> <laughs> you know i feel as if everything i say has to serve a certain purpose you know there has to be this, this this weight to it you know and i have to make sure that i use my words very carefully and if i forget to include you know some notion of the atrocities of the past you know then i'm not doing things correctly and it, it it's it's a heavy load to to carry all the time and i don't, and I don't think we have to you know yeah. we shouldn't you know if we're fully you know if we're we're humans you know we are yeah. a part of this you know this 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 you know this earth and we you know have human emotions it's really weird if we're only always you know using one set of emotions and let's talk about too you know what some of the other medical issues that you know are prominent in certain um communities and i wonder stress and you know just sadness and this 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 grief that we carry you know does eventually lead to other things that we have to eventually, you know, speak to doctors about. Um, I wonder if this little medicine here that, you know, Jose Baloney is giving us is not what we need somewhere, you know, just like, you know, just this, this, légèreté, uh, this lightness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, this is a, a, a thing I feel like I've been wrestling with for about 12 years now. Um, mm. My first semester of grad school, I had a colleague or we'll call a thing a thing a rival say in class oh. one day oh, <laughs> snap <laughs> it's a cutthroat world um he said all black art is necessarily political right and and like that was the thing that just really really sat with me because as an artist i feel like you can exist in a politicized body and still have your own space to create whatever it is that yes. you're creating like anyone yes. else. But then as an historian, everything that he said, like I immediately followed it. Right. And, and mm. I know that we also exist in the context that we exist. Right. And oh. there's a way that folks are going to read on to what you write things, mm. whether you mean them or not. So um, I really appreciate your perspectives here. Cause I think this is a, it's a really thorny issue. Is, anytime yeah. we're talking about <laughs> black art. I mean, I was literally talking about this with my therapist not one hour ago. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's so real. Yeah, I appreciate you complicating the answer too. It's like there's there's what you put out there, there's what you intend, there's the feeling that you have when you're creating a thing. And then especially as as black people or as any racialized person, there's like how it's actually perceived. So right, right, right. Yeah. Um, speaking of perception, uh, I wonder if you could speak to how uh, Bologna is known in the Francophone world now. Um, and like, does he have a following? How is he remembered, especially in the Black Francophone world? And knowing that yeah. it like looked different from 
from place to place. Like when we talked to the uh, director of Anonymous Lover, um, Maria Todoro, she was saying how in France where she grew up, like they, they didn't grow up learning about him. No. Like he wasn't a prominent figure, but I wonder if that's different from place to place. Can you yeah, that? so I mean, in France, you know, um, it's just very recently that there's a small plaque, you know, put on a, in a, a street. I try to find it on Google Maps. It's a very tiny street, you know, that's named after um, Jose Bologna. Mm -hmm. But in Guadeloupe, though, you know, um, this is this is good news. I mean, there are um, schools named after him. There are different endowments, different you know, scholarships. Mm -hmm. And there's this festival every year um, 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 that is, I, I think it's held in the US and also in Guadeloupe, called together lots of artists, you know, different from different parts of the world. And um, also, you know, um, show, showcasing black artists as well, you know, um, um, uh, not just maybe in, in symphonic works, but also in, you know, vocal music as well. And so in this part of the world, in the US and also in, you know, um, the, the French Caribbean um, territories, there's this, new energy around um, uh, Saint-Georges. And recently, um, um, researchers discovered um, the identity of his mom. You know, um, she, she, it's a little, a little sad, I guess. Well, it is sad, you know, um, just remembering someone um, through what they left behind, you know, so we uh, were able to find her apartment and to find the little objects she had, you know, her furniture. Um, the, there was a, the, the death notice, um, you know, she, she wasn't well off, clearly. She didn't have a very easy life. She was brought mm -hmm. to France um, by um, Joseph Boulogne's dad and um, was, I don't know how to say this, but was given her freedom, you know, a very tricky statement to say because, you know, we know that, you know, that's not humanly possible. But, you know, she was, you know, a, a free person in France and you know, did get some inheritance after the death of um, um, Joseph's uh, dad. But, you know, that wouldn't, wouldn't have been enough for her to live on. But, you know, it's not only in, you know, um, in his music and programming, you know, different different symphonies, but also just, you know, this this energy is also coming um, to help us understand his family, you know, the, 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 his mom, his half-sister, his dad. So I'll say that there's this, you know, uh, new attention being paid to Saint-Georges. Um, I'm not sure when um, in France we'll have um, the same energy. In France, there's probably some, still some debate about which angle to take, you know, which which would um, Joseph to honor. The, um, sit, the citizen who was active in the French Revolution, I don't know whether there's a, you know, there needs to be a discussion about which angle to choose, you know. Um, all of these, you know, aspects belong to one man, a citizen of France, and I, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's a matter of, you know, maybe some communication between the U.S. and France, musicians there, different conservators there, or, you know, between Guadeloupe, you know, which is actually, which, which is, you know, and, and I shouldn't probably make that distinction because, you know, Guadeloupe is a territory, is a, you know, a, a region of France. But um, here I am saying that, you know, in metropolitan France, there's not this, you know, um, great attention being paid to Saint-Georges, but in Guadeloupe there is. Is that sufficient? Is, you know, do we need to have France, metropolitan France, do a big to-do about Saint-Georges?
or are we okay with Guadeloupe, which is you know, a region of France, with them leading the charge and probably telling other countries, other spaces to say, this is how you should do it. So, you know, it's it's another you know, question. <laughs> you know, it, should it be a museum in France? Should it be in Guadeloupe? Mm -hmm. Do we need mm -hmm. museums? Do we need, you know, funding? Do we need, you know? So <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to really say what direction to take, but I'm happy that there is something going on. There's some energy, you know, being put into St. George. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, going back to um, sort of our earlier question about, you know, Black Mozart versus, you know, you know, having Boulogne stand apart in his own right. You know, when I was first learning about him, I found his life and his story just so exciting mm -hmm. um, and just so inspiring, um, you know, as a Black artist today. And so I'm just curious for you, you know, what are some of the, the lessons yeah. um, that his, his life and his story, um, you know, that would be relevant for, for artists today or yeah. that are relevant for you or inspiring for you? Yeah, um, you know, like you, I, I read, you know, his biography and I read, you know, different, you know, articles about him and I am inspired, you know. Um, this, the idea of triumph um, is interesting to me, um, you know, especially in the face of adversity. If you think about the time that he, you know, he was alive in France, when his presence in the country was so tenuous, you know, um, he was brought to France um, with, the idea, with the understanding that he'd be there for maybe three years to get education that was fit for a young man. And after three years, he should have gone back to Guadeloupe. Now, of course, we're in a time where there's not, you know, <laughs> there re really wasn't very, you know, how should I say? It was difficult to maybe keep track of people, you know, not rigorous checking. The spelling of someone's name wasn't always correct. And someone could maybe just change the last name and disappear, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, because of different wars and stuff, it was difficult for him to go back. But he, can you imagine navigating, you know, that space in France as someone who is off color, right? Whose status in the country kept changing, you know? Eventually, as a Black man, he could not marry. He could not, you know, he had really, you know, really no status there. But to you know use talent and you know his art to you know maybe sort of overcome those barriers and to still you know um, gain entry into certain circles and you know that to me is so inspiring and within that he was still able to create beautiful music to you know not that didn't come from a bitter and broken place you know it was still still able to you know. Um, uh, blossom in such a very, I don't know, it must have been a, a, a toxic environment for him. And so that to me, you know, is inspiring, this triumph, you know, um, in the face of um, adversity. And also just, you know, just him as, you know, um, this person who was able to write about love, even though his love life must have been, um, maybe not love life, but his, his he wasn't able to maybe achieve the sort of love that he would have wanted. Mm. Um, it is rumored that, you know, he did have a love child. Yeah, you've probably read about that, you know, you know that, you know, was left to, to die, you know, um, and that he was still, you know, the, the favorite of Marie Antoinette. He was still around these other artists, these other, you know, um, act, actresses and, you know, um, Madame in the, in, the, in the court. 
but yet he was unable to maybe, you know, achieve the sort of love that he would have wanted because of the color of his skin. How do you, I mean, how do you overcome that, you know? Um, and look, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that uh, it makes me sad, but at the same time, you know, this man was extremely resilient, must have been, to not crumble, to not, you know, just give up, you know? Um, and so there's so much more that and I, I want to discover about him, but just, you know, um, listen to his music and you, you can tell, you know, that he understood the depth of sorrow. He, you know, he could conjure up that spirit in his music. And I'm not a musicologist and I probably have you know, <laughs> stepping on some toes that I cannot read in music, you know, depths of sorrow, but I don't know. There's something in the music that, you know, you know, that, you know, can bring me, um, I don't know, make me feel this depth of emotion on, on both extremes, you know? This, this, this lighthearted, giddy, you know, um, very triumphant music, but also this, this the, you know, the very gut-wrenching sadness, you know, that's there as well. Uh, there's so much to, to hear, so much to experience in this music, you know, in all of it. Um, and there's more, there's more music that needs to be filmed. So we need people, I guess, to crawl into the archives with, you know, <laughs> nimble fingers and, uh, you know, to find this music that's been lost. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, if any of you all out there want to um, experience some of his music, um, unfortunately, Anonymous Lover has closed um, at Minnesota Opera, but there are still plenty of clips of the show online. You can go see some of the wonderful arias performed by our wonderful cast at mnopera.org. And there is also, um, uh, you were mentioning um, the Festival International de Musique Saint-Georges. Yes, yes. And I think um, because of COVID, unfortunately, it will be happening either later this year or next year, not this spring as it usually does, but go check out their website and um, you can learn more about that. And we'll put all of that information in the show notes. Um, so Professor Ledford, we are so grateful that you joined us today. Thank you so, so much for being on the show and for imparting all of this wisdom and teaching us even more about um, Joseph Ballone and his life. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun for me. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And we will be right back with Pure Black Joy. Yay! All right, and we are back. Love that conversation. Thank you so much, Professor Ledford, for being with us and Absolutely. sharing all of your insights. So wonderful. Ooh, and that velvety accent. Ooh, it just... <laughs> yes. I love being surrounded by y'all West Indians. I really do. It was like a warm hug. It's like a it warm was. hug. Uh. <laughs> but if that's not enough pure black joy for you, it's time for the official Pure Black Joy segment. One, a two, a one, two, three, four. Peanut butter jelly, 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 peanut butter jelly. It's peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly time. Whole wheat, whole wheat. Multigrain for me. Oh, remix. 
this is the the segment of the show where we just talk about some black things that are making us happy this week. So who wants to go first, Lee? Yes, I would love to. Um, so earlier in the broadcast, Paige, I think you mentioned monuments, right? And how we are memorializing a moment for ourselves. So I want to share a little bit of um, Black History Month news from my hometown, oh. Rich Richmond, Virginia. Um, okay. At one point, capital of the Confederacy, okay. currently trying to do something different. Um, so um, as many of you know, there were um, these six Confederate, you know, quote, hero statues um, in Richmond, most appeared on this major thoroughfare called Monument Avenue, mm -hmm. which also randomly has a statue to Arthur Ashe, another Richmonder. It's, um, an, it's an interesting street, child. to say the least. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's yes. all like and it's like all cobblestones like you're driving on like cobblestone mm -hmm. anyway yeah sorry, keep going <laughs> <laughs> so with um robert e lee's statue coming down last year the last of those six were removed they've all been placed in other places and um as a part of the black history month acknowledgement this year the virginia museum of fine arts is showcasing a lot about the history of the town and there's been a lot that's been organized around it and there's one particular piece i'd love to draw folks attention to there's a project called mending walls it's a public art project by hamilton glass and it's acknowledging that with these confederate statues coming down instead what is going up are all of these murals many of which are directly celebrating black lives matter but it's sort of reframing what is memorialized in richmond how people are talking about the history and then centering um, the experiences of black people in richmond which is really important because the city of richmond for quite some time has been predominantly predominantly black right mm -hmm. um richmond hasn't been an all white or even mostly white town for decades and decades so one i'm super excited that there's this shift happening that people are thinking about public spaces have a very different kind of a conversation than the one was happening in the city when i was growing up and on february 24th there's going to be um, a speaker series that will begin the first speaker is going to be lawrence douglas wilder who many of you will remember oh, okay. is the first black man to be elected governor he's also the first elected mayor of Richmond. Richmond just didn't have elected mayors until like 2005. Uh, they were they... appointed. Yeah. Oh, um, by who? I, I, child, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's always a, a a curiosity of like sort of how the system was set up. But um, Governor Wilder is also a family friend and, you know, he is living Black history. He's now in his 90s. I encourage people to go hear him speak. He's a fantastic speaker um right from richmond and will speak you know pointedly and openly about the challenges that we have faced in the city and really how we are trying to be different now in 2022 so i'm super excited about that i i wish things would shake out in such a way that i could go home to see it but i'm just proud of my hometown for taking that work on because i know it's not easy in a city where that history is so baked into so many things so nice nice i just have to say richmond is one of my favorite places in the world it really Aww. is 
I love Richmond so much. Every time I go there, I have such a good time. Such a good food city. Good, good food. Yeah. Good, good okay. food. And cheap. Yeah. It and really is. <laughs> <laughs> cheap, good food. Like, and you can just walk around, like, especially like, you know, like an area like the fan mm-hmm. or something like it's mm-hmm. just the architecture is just so beautiful. I just everywhere there's a veranda there's a porch you know I love a porch honey (laughs) it's just such a beautiful city just the parks the trees the I I can't say enough good things about Richmond so shout out to uh, Rachel Pryor and Maureen Brooks (laughs) (laughs) to visit then yeah you do you do go to Black Sheep get a sandwich (laughs) definitely go to Black Sheep yeah. Okay. Okay. Ipanema, good vegan food. Is that place still open? I wonder. I I'm not sure actually. Hmm. Um, the pandemic was yeah. It, it hurt the restaurant scene really bad. It really there. did. Yeah. That place with the biscuits. Um, what is that? That place could called? be literally anywhere. No, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Sad. No, but they have anyway. <laughs> they have biscuit sandwiches and like uh amazing the cuban place cuba libre i think it's called mm-hmm. anyway anyway mm-hmm. i can talk about food in richmond for like <laughs> 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 the same way i could talk about food in philly <laughs> oh i love philadelphia it's one of my favorite cities so we are I just need to do an East Coast like foodie tour. Yes. I think Mm -hmm. I just want to go from like Philly to uh, like Virginia, Baltimore. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Baltimore. Baltimore. Philly, Baltimore, Mm -hmm. Virginia. Okay. Okay. And swing by DC too. (laughs) I mean, we can't neglect DC. I, okay. DC is my hometown and I love it to death. But like, the food scene. Can you compare it to some other places nearby? I feel it's like a great. lot of the good food about DC comes from outside of DC. That's probably true. I mean, please, uh, yeah. please go and patronize <laughs> DC businesses. Jose Andres is out here killing it. Mm. <laughs> beautiful mm. work. And also, there are all sorts of beautiful, you know, incredible restaurants in the city i don't mean to besmirch (laughs) 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 i'm just saying if you're gonna you know spend some money to go on a trip to eat things maybe philly or richmond are both <laughs> <That's all I'm... laughs> don't hate me, DC. I'm sorry. I love you. <laughs> Mumbo sauce is the truth. Love it. Go get oh, you a half. Sauce. Go get I you a half sauce. smoke. Absolutely. <laughs> I really do miss the three piece wings with fried rice and mumbo sauce all over. That sounds Absolutely. really good. I really do. Absolutely. That is- field trip right <laughs> see let's get this patreon started weren't you talking about like a food festival like a couple of months ago wasn't that your pure black joy like a long time ago there was like a midwest oh, yeah. like- it was like resta- black restaurant week yes black well, when restaurant is that week. that is when is that Ooh, i don't know let's start a patreon and go I feel like that was in summer maybe would you all would you all pay to hear us eat? 
say yes. Just say yes. But speaking of, I don't know what I'm speaking of. Um, Paige, do you have a pure black joy? Now I'm thinking about food. Now I want to go to monks in Philadelphia. Blackness and goodness. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I'm thinking about now. Now I'm thinking about how I haven't eaten anything. I made about crab cakes. I made a a pot of red beans last weekend. It's the leftovers are waiting for me in the fridge. Okay, enough about food. Do I make none for us? Wow. Okay. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) COVID, you know. It's not safe. (laughs) It's not safe. (laughs) Anyway, my pure black joy is uh, actually, I think technically this is a repeat. But once again, if, if I said it before, I'm going to say it again. I'm just talking about Alana Morris Van Tassel, my okay. good friend, yes. dancer, choreographer, uh, embodied researcher, and her piece, uh, Black Light, which is an ongoing mm. dance research. Um, I saw the performance uh, this past weekend at the Cole Center. Um Let's see. Oh, we're recording this February 9th. So that would have been, you know, uh, a while ago for for some of (laughs) y'all. But this is an ongoing research. So there will be other points to see other iterations of Blacklight. Um, The performance was just fantastic. So Alana's work, Blacklight, is very much of a personal nature about her personal journey of empowerment, finding herself as a Black woman, as... Uh, rediscovering her her spiritual side, mm. getting in touch with the darkness that's in all of us as well, defining blackness for yourself, defining your sexuality for yourself, mm. just kind of that inner awakening and journey um, that happens and the ancestors and spirit guides as well that have been along with her in that journey. And it was just so, so beautiful to watch. And to repeat what an audience member said, uh, during the post-show Q&A, she just said it was so refreshing to to like see a dancer with something to say Hmm. or to see a a performance that uh, where a dancer was empowered to to have something to say, to do deep, deep research and and share it. Um, I was honored to be the moderator for the post-show talk back. Um, Yeah, and that was just fantastic. It was... She's brought together, I think also what's unique about this project is bringing together a lot of collaborators who are from different types of Black movement disciplines. So uh, there is Janan St. Juice, who we've Mm -hmm. been talking about, Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. choreographed Anonymous Lover. She's also a part of Alana's piece um, in working on the Haitian movement and uh, bringing part of her company, her mother, Madame Fofo, as well, and Uh, live drummers who are not only drummers, but like just deeply rooted in Haitian spiritual tradition as well. Um, Bringing my friend Andrea Potter, who is an Afro-Cuban dancer and danced professionally for years in New York and has deep knowledge of that. Another friend who, uh, Imagine Joy, who just incorporates sensuality and, Mm. 
and a ballroom movement as well because he's wonderful black queer dancer yeah gabby abrams as well who brought who brought like so many disciplines it's a fantastic to see also what happens when we resource uh mm-hmm. black artists and support black artists who are <laughs> who are bringing this kind of thing together and it was just a, it was a joy to behold i highly highly encourage people to to check out her work um this performance was actually it was di- digital as well so i hope oh, future okay. ones will be and you know if future ones are i'll make sure I'll make sure I mention them on the show because y'all can watch wherever you're at and and enjoy it. So just shout out to Alana, shout out to the entire, all of her collaborators. Y'all did a fantastic job. Um, yeah, and I hope we get to see more magic like that in the Twin Cities on our stages. Absolutely. Nice. Congratulations. So Alana and Gabby and Andrea and everybody else involved. That sounds awesome. And you, Paige. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's super yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's it for me. Um, well, mine's going to be a repeat, too. I think this was my pure black track. I think it was episode two. Um, but now here we are almost a year later. Um, and, you know, just want to give them even more shine, you know, mm-hmm. ostensibly we have more listeners. but you know with everything going on all of the insanity and craziness in the world I um you know have really just made it even more um it's just even more important to me to just have you know a mindfulness practice and exercise practice where I'm just sort of taking this energy that's in my body and moving it around so it doesn't sort of get you know, stifled and gross and toxic and moldy and musty. Um, So last week I set the goal for myself to at least work out for half an hour every single day last week. That was my goal. And I met and exceeded that goal six days out of seven last week. I'm very proud of myself. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was not easy. (laughs) (laughs) Especially given the amount of meetings that are on my Mm -hmm. calendar in any given day. Um, But the one two of the reasons why it was so easy Um, was A, thanks to my YouTube trainer, uh, Kira Lachey. Yes. (laughs) Move Fitness on YouTube. She has all sorts of videos where, you know, especially like if you're in like a small space where you don't want to go outside because it's winter or maybe it's super hot where you are and you want to be inside in the air conditioning. Like she's got a a series of really great videos that you can just like, you know, move the couch back and, you know, <laughs> do whatever kickboxing or, you know, just you know, like just walking in place and like doing some aerobics or if you have like a pair of dumbbells, um, you know, lifting, but also like incorporating dance and like she's got like, you know, 90s hip hop like videos okay. and okay. like, you know, twerk for like better abs and like, <laughs> okay. you know, dance hall, you know, your way okay, to you like, you know, <laughs> booty, no more flabby arms and things like that. So if that's your, if that's your ministry, 
you know, I highly recommend it. It's just super fun, you know, and she's there with her girl, Brina Kay, and they're just having the best time and just like making like what for me for such a long time just was such a chore, you know, actually like fun and like, you know, super black and the music is always really good and I don't feel, I feel like she's just such a, a calm, non-judgmental presence. Mm-hmm. And then when she, when she needs to push you, she will push you. <laughs> go, go, go. <laughs> but it's fun. It's not in a way that like feels like, you know, like some like scary man, like, you know, mm-hmm. yelling at you, some sort of drill sergeant. Um, but also another reason why it was, it felt really easy for me is because I look cute while I'm doing it thanks hey. to my MCE creation shorts and undies and things I now have the entire line I have become addicted um but you know for anyone who is in the market for some cute workout clothes MC Creations is a black and queer owned business out of Alabama and I have never had a pair of shorts that makes me look so cute and makes me feel so confident they're not paying me to say this (laughs) i would love some free (laughs) whatever michael if you're out there listening um (laughs) but you know go go to uh, mcecreations.com and check out their stuff because it's so cute and it just will make you and comfortable and comfortable it's cute and comfortable so it must be because it's two degrees outside and you are really promoting shorts on here. So I it am. Must be amazing. I am. I <laughs> should am. make you official spokesperson <laughs> or influencer. And they like type. now they have like now they have like the workout shorts that they have like terry cloth shorts, like lounge shorts. And oh. I'm just like, you are just trying to kill me and my bank account. <laughs> it's so mean. Stop putting out cute things. <laughs> that's it so that's my pure black joy so go check all of those things out all of the links to all of those things will be in the show notes and i think that's going to do it for us this week uh thank you so much to professor julian ledford for joining us and thank you to all of you and i just want to put it out there again you know our our initial conversation about just sort of the state of the world and you know what you want or expect or need from arts organizations like ours, please let us know. We want to hear from you. We want to even perhaps read your letters um, on the air. Um, the score at mnoffer.org is our email. So please, 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 we want to hear from you. And uh, other than that, as usual, rate, review, uh, five stars on Apple five. Podcasts. You heard him. <laughs> you heard him. We're not playing. <laughs> Five stars, please. Some words, maybe. 
on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, subscribe on your podcast, favorite podcast platform and uh, tell, tell all your little friends about us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next, uh, next episode, we're going to be joined by the big boss here at uh, Minnesota Opera for, uh, well, I mean, next time it's going to be our, our one year anniversary. It sure one is. year of doing this. So wild. So we're going to be joined by Minnesota Opera's president and general director, Mr. Ryan Taylor, as well as Nina Yoshida Nelson, who Woo-hoo. is an amazing opera singer and the founder of the Asian Opera Alliance. So she's going to tell us all about her work and her organization's work. And uh, it's going to be a really great show. So we hope you all tune in. Um, but other than that... Any words of wisdom? (laughs) (laughs) How about the stay stay safe, take care of yourself, do whatever you need to do to to stay in a a headspace where you you can function and not scream every 30 seconds. How about that? Yeah, the words of Marshawn Lynch, take care of your mental. There you go. Take care of your mental. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's probably (laughs) going to be the the episode title. Take care of your mental. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's it. We will see you in two weeks. And uh, be good. Love you. Bye, everybody.